Welcome to the Wedding Film Academy podcast, your go-to source for learning to create stunning wedding films and run a successful business. Here's your host, Lumix Luminary and wedding filmmaker, Jordan Bunch. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Wedding Film Academy podcast. We're continuing on. I think this is likely going to be the conclusion of our series on composition. And with us today, we have an old pro here. We have... Uh, I think this is your third time on the show, so welcome again, Rob. Thanks. This is, Rob this, Adams. Yeah, this is uh, the third time I'm appearing. Uh, it's great to be here. I, I just be, I would just be a little bit weary about how you're using that term "old." Uh, <laughs> 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 I, I am a little older. This is true. I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm crossing over. Well, I crossed over 42 years ago. Now I'm coming up on 42. So I guess you could use the term "old." Go. I mean, I guess in terms of the industry average, I'm definitely on the older side. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. What I meant to say was you've probably been on the show more than anybody uh, <laughs> now at this point. So <laughs> I know what you mean. Sorry if my voice is a little gravelly, too. I shot a wedding. I was uh, They held me for two hours over time last night. So You, you know that wedding hangover oh, wow. you get, man. You, you, just, you wake up the next day and you just know that you're... Your, your joints are going to be inflamed, and again, this is the old guy talking. Uh, but you know, yeah. you, you know, your joints your joints are going to be inflamed. Your right hand's going to have that death, you know, that death grip going on, and then you know, my voice is always shot just from yelling at photographers and stuff. Well, then I stand by my original statement of the old pro. Yes, it, it's very <laughs> fitting. You know, as much as I don't want to admit it. <laughs> awesome. Very cool. Well, uh, before we dive into uh, the topic at hand, uh, yeah, just kind of like update me on what you're up to lately. All right. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, mid-wedding season going on right now. Uh, on your advice and recommendation and encouragement, I have made a partial switch over to the Panasonic GH5. Um, insert applause track nice. here. <laughs> it's actually great so far. I'm, I'm planning on making a complete switch. Um, and when I, when I nice. soft announced that I was moving over to Panasonic, I didn't make like a declarative statement that I was doing it, but I, I sort of made some comments on some threads and just sort of injected the fact that I'm doing it in certain conversations and people were kind of right. taken aback. Like, really, you're going, you're going micro four thirds. Um, but my initial, um, the way I'm, I'm rolling it out initially is I'm using one GH5 in conjunction with my C100 um, setup, and I'm using it on mm-hmm. my gimbal, you know, my handheld Xiaoyun uh, crane, and I'm using it, you know, as a wide. I'm using it as my my fly cam, and I'm loving it. Uh, nice. the, you know, the image quality is great. Form factors sick. The features built in amazing. Uh, I'm loving it. I really am all around. So I'm phasing it in nice. slowly, and you know, I was telling you earlier. We are um, we're planning on making a complete switch to the GH5 by October, November of this year. So we're yeah okay. we're moving in that direction. We are renting and testing, and you know when I say we, I mean me, uh, and you know and my crew on <laughs> the weddings. I'm renting yeah, and testing sure. different lenses, the Leica lenses, um, to see which ones I really like, which ones I'm gonna you know bring in as a primary kit, a secondary kit. You know, it's strange. I mean, it's always been the case with the C100, but with the Panasonic, especially finding other shooters that are already using it is a little, it's a little thin at this point. Mm. Um, You know, and I think more people are catching on, but you know, I'm going to have to outfit the entire crew 
again, I'm used to doing that. Sure. I did that with the C100s and everything. So, you know, um, it's a gradual phase in. I'm really, really looking forward to being all GH5. And uh, it's going to get a real test this coming week when I leave for Costa Rica on Monday. Actually, by the time this airs, I'll probably already be back. Um, but I'm taking only one GH5. I'm taking a Gorilla Pod, and I'm taking uh, a 25 millimeter, a 42 and a half millimeter, and my seven to 14. So those, I mean, that nice. entire kit is going to fit in a very small bag, and yeah, that makes for me sure. that's going to be awesome. That makes me so happy. It, it's just you know the last time I went there to film. You know, I had two C100s. I had, you know, a large tripod to accommodate the heavier camera. I had my Canon lenses. And it was a lot to sure. carry. It's a lot to bring, you know. So this is yeah, going to be. Yeah, now you're an old pro, so you have to go small. Yeah, man. That's the whole reason I'm trying to go small package. I can't, my body just can't take it anymore. But truth be told, it really it does, um, you know, I know this is your series on composition. It definitely changes. It, get, it opens up more doors into terms of, um you know, how to, you know, get different angles and, and fit, maybe fit sure. into places that you could, you know, that were a little bit awkward before. And, uh, I, I can't wait for this coming week when I really get to push it through its paces. And it's, this is a charity job for me. I'm not getting paid. So the, the expectation of delivering, you know, and, and not completely screwing something up, um, doesn't exist. So I really have some right. creative flexibility and freedom here where I can, um, push the camera through its paces and really, you know, test its limits and see, you know, where it fails, where it succeeds, where it sings. Um, and my experience with it so far has been so good that I don't see it underperforming in ways, um, you know, in any unexpected way. So, you know, we'll see. By yeah. come the end of next week, I'll really have a grasp of, you know, how it's going to impact my wedding workflow and uh, fit in, you know, with the team. So I'm excited. Nice. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, for sure. I mean, just what you said in that you're bringing a Gorilla Pod with you. It's like, well, you could have never supported a C100, you know, with a big full frame lens on a Gorilla Pod. So the spaces that you can put a Gorilla Pod are really going to change your composition if you're utilizing that. Yeah, I mean, you know, up high, down low, whatever, you know, on tabletops, that sort of thing. Yeah, it really opens up a lot of doors. And then just the added factor of being able to go handheld with, you know, lens and um, in-camera stabilization. Um, so right. I can walk with the Gorillapod. Let's say we're trekking through, you know, a pretty rough area. You know, when I'm, where I'm, what I'm filming down in Costa Rica is um, it's for uh, my friends who are missionaries. And they're, mm -hmm. um, they're volunteering in a, in a barrio and, you know, we have to walk through some pretty rough areas and, you know, you don't want to be walking through with yeah. a gimbal. So, you know, I'm, I'm, here, I'm sure. excited to test out how the camera performs just in a walking scenario and with a small, you know, with a gorilla pod on. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I've, I've gone for the, for the dance floor footage, uh, at the reception, I've gone pretty much completely handheld at this point. Um, and you know, I'm not doing a lot of walking around like you're talking about, but, uh, you know, for handheld, uh, you know, dance floor footage, it just, it works perfect. And I, I kind of, it does have, um, you know, just that, that hair of movement that you, um, you know, you put into it with handheld footage. Um, but to me, like it almost works better that way 
than locked down on a monopod for dance floor footage because it just, you know, it, it adds to the drama of what's happening, you know, the excitement, the passion, the drunkenness exactly <laughs> that that's happening on the dance floor you that know? that's funny you mentioned that i've always looked at i've always even with the c100s and other cameras i've always gone handheld during dancing um oh really okay so i just started doing that but, yeah uh, and, and i it blown away at, yeah at the fact that there's like zero micro jitter whatsoever you know yeah yeah and the micro i always accepted a little bit of the micro jitter you know just because of that exactly what you were talking about you're you know the camera is the extension of the human eye and um, you know, right. being on the dance floor and, and creating that that feeling that you're in the crowd and actually at the party. That, you know, and I, sometimes I'll whip the camera around and really, you know, I'll track one subject on my far right, uh, lock them in focus at one four, and then I'll whip the camera to the left to, and just quickly find focus on somebody else. Almost like you're drunk, you're dancing, and then you're trying to you look and your eyes have to refocus. Um, yeah, I've actually used that as a technique, and then in the films. And, yeah, I mean, it just it really inserts the viewer into the into the into the energy of the party, like you were saying. So yeah, that's a great yeah. But yeah. it'll be great to see how the GH5 handles that because right now it's you know I just keep it locked on the gimbal. I do have a quick release plate on it, um, but this, the gimbal can be a little testy in terms of balance. So I just I just tend to leave it on, and then uh, you know as we face more cameras in, we'll be doing a lot more uh, playing around. Nice, nice, very cool. Well, we've already kind of dived in a little bit into this topic, um, although unintentionally. So uh, let's dive a little bit deeper into the idea of, in particular, I'm curious, this has kind of been my first question for everybody, is really just what's inspiring your composition during production? So, you know, while you're actually, whether it's you're on set or you're there at, uh, you know, at the wedding what are you looking for that's inspiring the way you compose your your image and camera? Well, obviously, storytelling is the primary <clears throat> driver. So, you know, uh, when, I, when I'm framing a shot, I'm always thinking about it in terms of the edit context. So, mm -hmm. if I frame a shot where the bride is in the right third of the camera and I feel like I'm going to cut to a, another shot um, that maybe I'm filming directly after that, I'll try to either use the extreme opposite or I'll center and then go wide. Um, I'm always thinking about moving the, the, the viewer's eye around the screen. So I'm never going to cut two shots that are so similar unless I'm trying to show two people in two different spaces doing the exact same thing. Um, like, for okay. example, bride and groom reading a card. If the bride's reading a card, I might compose the shot exactly the same way as it is on the other end. Uh, and how do I know that? I don't. I just guess. Um, but my crew, you know, we work together so often that I kind of know how they all shoot, um, you know, and I'll frame it up exact. But if I'm moving a viewer's eye around a room or around a scene or a sequence, I'm always thinking extremes, extreme right, extreme left, extreme wide, extreme close. That's going to give the viewer's eye the most motion. If um. If I'm doing something that's, you know, limiting in space, if I'm in a small space, I'll still think in terms of extremes. So, like, let's say I have mom and bride and they're next to a window in a very small room and it's the only light we have. And I've got, like, a 35 millimeter on. And, you know, I'm, the bride is putting her jewelry on and mom is helping her. Um, and mom is standing off to, you know, one side of her and she's, you know, reaching down and helping her with the bracelet let's just let's just say 
I'll get an extreme close on the bracelet. I'll step back as far as I can, try to get a two shot, you know, even if they're crammed into the frame a little bit. And then I'll shoot to mom's face only, frame her up extreme right to where even like most of her face is cut off. And then I'll go extreme left to the bride's face where almost half of her face is cut off, leaving a lot of negative space in the middle of that image or on either side, the opposite side of that image. Yeah. And then when it cuts together, you're creating space. So even though you're working in a very small space, you're creating room, environment, you're creating space. So the extreme close-up to the extreme right, extreme left, leaving that negative space. That's how I'll approach that. If I'm given room to work, I love big, epic, extreme wide shots. Like that just pulls the viewer out. It gives you context of the entire scene. And then you contrast that with extreme close-ups. And then your medium shots are mixed in there. I've always thought of medium shots as boring. Like when I when I go to frame something up, if I'm going to frame a medium shot, I'm like, Ugh. it just looks like a talking head to me. Um, so I'm always looking at extremes. Um, you know, of brides walking down a sta- uh, you know flight of stairs. I'm never going to center her up dead center. Uh, even 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 the traditional thirds are almost boring to me. Um, sometimes I'll cut off people at the waist just to leave a huge amount of uh, negative space above them. Uh, this just yeah. creates. It creates dynamicism, if that's the correct way to say that. Uh, It also creates Mm. just, like I said before, negative space. And that's where composition to me becomes, you know, noticeable. It's noticeable. It's different. It's not the same old, okay, rule of thirds, rule of thirds. Put them in the third. uh, Put the eyes in the cross of the thirds. You know, that sort of thing. So I'm always thinking extremes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that because – one thing that I coach my shooters on is just the idea that if you use one rule of composition, it's this, that you, you frame things in a way that look different from how you always see the world. And if that's the only rule of composition that you know, and you practice that, then you're probably going to do a pretty decent job, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, you know, basically what you said is that, that kind of medium uh, eye level shot. That's how we view the world, right? Through it, a 50 millimeter lens. For the most part, you know, right. Basically. Yep, eye level, right. Um, right. So, you know, if if we're always shooting things from that distance, then it's it's going to look like the way that we normally view the world, which is going to be, you know, relatively uninteresting. Right. It's going to so seem very I, benign and normal, right? Exactly. So if you think about most of the rules of composition, whether it's, you know, rule of thirds, um, you know, normally we look at people um, when we, we're talking to someone, we're looking at them and they're in the center of our frame. And so that's why it's interesting to move them off to a third or, you know, in your case, doing that even more extreme, moving them, you know, way off to the edge of the frame. Right. Um, or, you know, that's why we get up high or why we get down low. Um, it's why we do all these things, you know, when we add movement to, to a scene, all these things are just basically, uh, taking us out of the way that we normally see things, which just makes it interesting. So that's really what I hear. And what you're saying there is by going to the extremes, you're doing that even to a further extent than the traditional, you know, quote unquote, top 10 rules of composition. Right. And, and I think, you know, it's our job as filmmakers to, 
you know, going back to what I said before about moving, it's your job to move the viewer's eye around the screen. You know, it's not 360 video. Um, you know, when you're standing in a room talking to a bunch of people, your eyes, just t- take notice the next time you're in a group setting, notice how much movement your eyes do. Um, your eyes really bounce around a lot. It's very rare that we're locked on to something for any lengthy period of time, unless you're really engaged in what that person's telling you, or they're doing something so hilariously funny, you don't want to take your eyes off of it. Um, but, mm-hmm. uh, or amazing, but you know, your eyes do move around, they bounce around. So in the context of cutting together a scene, I'm always thinking quick, move the eyes around, keep this thing moving, keep momentum. Um, and the extremes help to create that space in order to do that. I never understood either why people, um, why filmmakers will shoot kids from a traditional stand-up eye level. That's like the worst way to shoot kids. And I see it all the time in wedding films. Um, you know, they're shooting kids, but they're doing it from a standing position. Now, I know kids move quickly, and it's very difficult sometimes to rack, you know, to get down to a level that's on their eye level and then rack a focus. You know, sometimes you miss the action doing that. But if you can anticipate the action and if you know something is coming, um, you got to get down on that eye level with the kids, man. That's the only way. Sometimes even lower than the kid to make them look even more <laughs> interesting right. uh, is a great way to do that. Um, but yeah, I mean like just moving the eye around a scene and it's not just in the 360 on the on the x-axis. I'm talking about the y-axis too. I mean really get get down low, get up high, uh, three quarters right. from above, extremes, you know, that, that stuff just – and you know, if it's well shot, uh, if you – you know, I always have – I think I've talked about this before. You have the two strikes rule with, you know, shots. Uh, it has to be exposed, composed – and uh, focused. If two of those things are missing, the shot is worthless. Um, yeah. You know, even misfocus can work as long as the composition is there um, and it's quick. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I always, you know, try to nail all three of those, obviously. But if two of those three are, yeah. don't exist, the shot doesn't work. So, you know, composition is a big part of that. And, uh, you know, even a poorly exposed shot, you know, if it's composed well, can work in the context of a full edit you know, with a little tweaking afterwards. Yeah, for sure. No, great advice. Yeah. I'm thinking about uh, the Y axis thing. I was watching your recent film and I don't know why this shot in particular stood out to me, but I I think it was part of partly is because of that Y axis. And then also the way that you use symmetry in this shot, but it was just a, it was just a little B roll shot of the hotel or the building that they were in with the flag outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, typically I think you, you don't look up at the flag unless you're looking at it from a distance. And so that's not normally the angle that you see it from, from that low angle Y axis. And so even just like little, little things like that, it's almost, it puts you back in the perspective of a child almost, you know, by getting down at that angle and then creates that, Again, that unique perspective of you're seeing the world in a different kind of way. Yes, and it's it's about epicness too. It's about you know seeing something you know from a uh, you know you give making it awe inspiring to look at you know and the, if you add in a little bit of motion, a little parallaxing, and then you know the flag itself is moving, uh, you know that really right. creates a lot of drama. And then you slow it down, of course, and then it creates even more drama and steadiness. Um, yeah, so a shot like that becomes very effective. What would you, what you would consider to be a very plain shot becomes effective, uh, in the context of that edit. Yeah. I mean, I'm always looking at things from, 
how can I make this look interesting? You know, even if it's the most mundane thing, like makeup, shooting brides makeup to me is the most mundane thing in the world. It's just, it's been overdone. It's been, you know, the high, it's on everybody's highlight reel. It is, you know, a marquee shot, you know, and everybody does it from the same angle. (laughs) It's that three quarter from above into nice light, you know, shooting down, focused on the eyes and, you know, shallow. Um, It's a great shot, you know, and a lot of people do it. And, you know, brides love it because it makes them all look pretty. Um, but you know, the fact of the matter is to me, that's boring as hell and I'm tired of doing it. So, you know, yesterday I actually, for the first time, I didn't move the bride into nice natural light. I left her in the really crappy, um, you know, tungsten lighting, but she had, there were these sconces on the walls in the hotel that had this, these crystalline things hanging off of it and they bokeh really nicely. Um, so all I did was I filled in her face with a little bit of led on a tungsten setting. Um, just to add a little fill. Um, and then I use those crystallines in the background for bokeh. And then I stopped down the silhouette using the bokeh. And I, I immediately threw out the previous shot. I'm like, I'm not using that shot. Because the, mm-hmm. the silhouette with the bokeh behind it was just so dynamic. Uh, and I shot it close. Mm-hmm. I shot it medium. I shot it wide. And I was still able to silhouette. Um, you know, And there's my three nice. makeup shots. Completely different in really crappy light. Um, but it's not like any makeup shots that I've done before. So like that is... That's what I'm looking at when I'm going into a scene. I'm like, eh, do I want to shoot this the same old way or do I want to try to find a way to change up the composition, change up the exposure, make it look a lot different, and then inject a little something new into the into the edit. Yeah, I love that because taking the um, that rule of how do I see the world and let me change it to another extreme of – as a filmmaker, how do I see the world and see also all the other work that's out there and then still think differently beyond even that? So that adds a whole new level to it, which I really appreciate. Yeah, it's very easy to fall into a lockstep. And, you know, I mean, and let's face it, we are in business too. I mean, we are trying to make money. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel every wedding. Um, but when you get right. bored creatively, you know, this is a good way to approach that. I, I just, I, you know, I, there's nothing wrong with going out and doing the same thing every time. If that's what works for you and the brides are happy, you know, also you have to take into account that we're trying to make, you know, brides look pretty, their prettiest. Um, so certain angles will not work, even though it looks good in camera, it may not be flattering to the person. You know what I mean? Like, did you ever have right. a situation where you have an angle that just looks great, but the bride just does not look good in that angle? Uh, yep, it's like, you know, sure. Not everybody fits into all scenarios. You can try on a shirt that you really like on the rack, but it may not look good on your, on your body. Um, so, you know, those there's, that's something else you have to take into consideration too. So if you have time and luxury of time to sit and play around and, you know, you're not trying to, you know, stick to a formula that is going to work every time and, you know, it's exactly what the bride expects, that's where extreme compositions and changing it up really become fun. Uh, you know, so you're not worried yeah. about, missing and that's the other thing you're not worried about like missing a crucial moment i would never try to experiment with composition the moment before a bride walks down the aisle um there will be some serious thought and planning that goes into that well before she comes down um so i mean unless it's a throwaway camera that i'm just putting out there static and saying eh, we'll see what this camera gets you know um don't sacrifice your, your you know your main shot your main you know your money maker because the last thing you want is to come away with, you know, nothing usable. Yeah, for sure. So maybe a good piece of advice for someone would be 
particularly on a wedding where you have a lot of time before the um, before the ceremony, you know, maybe there's sometimes it's it's a very tight schedule beforehand, but sometimes it's a little more loose. You know, maybe get that that typical shot, uh, those typical shots that you always get of you know the prep time, and then once you've got those shots, you know, a lot of times you're just kind of sitting around trying to figure out what to do next or just waiting on a moment to happen. Use that time to to really kind of look around the room and think about what could I do differently here. Um, you know, that's a lot of times the case with, with dance floor footage too, is, you know, we feel like we have what we need in the first 20, 30 minutes of dance floor footage, but they're going to be going for another two hours. Well, rather than shooting the same way that you've always done it, stop and think, what could I do that's different? Because I already have everything I really need for the highlight. So what else could I try that's different that if it doesn't work, it's no big deal because I already got what I wanted, you know? Yeah, I've always called that R&D time. It's research and development time. Uh, and yeah. it's harder later in the evening too because you're wiped out. You've already been working nine, ten hours in some cases. And, you know, you get down to the reception and you're just kind of like, oh, you know, I really don't have the strength <laughs> to uh, yeah. to try a whole new concept out here. But I'll, I'll scan the room. I'll look around. I'll look at different light sources, um, especially when DJs are throwing around a good amount of colored light. It's always cool to just kind of say, hey, what's different here? What, what, what is standing out to me as something that I've never never noticed before? Uh, the way the light is hitting a wall. Like a lot of times I'll, sh- I'll look at the wall to see if it's, the lights are throwing uh, people's shadows onto the wall, like mm-hmm. a, a group of people dancing. And every second or two, their silhouettes or shadows are being cast onto the wall by the lights. I'll shoot the wall, you know, and then cut that into the context of the of the dancing scene, um, you know, or, you know, find a way, and it sounds so cliche, to get down low and shoot people's feet on the dance floor. It is cliche. It's yeah. been done. Um, is there a different way I can approach this? What if I invert the camera? What if I put the camera upside down? Or what if I intend on flipping the shot, make it look like they're dancing on the ceiling? You know, something like that, just to change it up. Just scan the room, look around. What's different? What's new? Um, I, I, I realized at one point not too long ago that it had been probably over a year and a half before I shot any DJ or band footage. I, I just, I had become so enamored with faces and people and emotion and reaction when shooting that, that part of the day that I wasn't concentrating on the big picture. Where's the music coming from? Mm. You know, where, where's right. the light coming from? Uh, let's give the viewer an, a full picture of what's happening here. I, I've started following the wait staff and filming them putting down dinners on tables. And you want to talk mm. about getting some funny looks from people. Um, you know, a lot of times <laughs> the venues here in, in, in the Northeast, they, they come out like in a parade, you know, and they're all carrying a plate. And then they each, they go to one table and then 10 of them stand around the table and then they all put the plate down. Um, I'll follow them handheld. I'll just follow them completely focused at like one, four, really shallow, just following one of the plates in their hands with like a 50 on. And then I'll try to track it to get them to the table and they put the plate down and then I'll go, I'll go wide and do it again when the next line of people come out and I'll, I'll cut it together and it looks seamless. Um, so there, you're using composition to tell a story, but you're showing something that not isn't normally seen in a wedding film. And I like I like those moments now. I'm like, what can I put in here that people don't normally see? 
And I'm, I can't take full credit at all for this because I've seen it done before. Um, you know, I've seen sure. some crews go back into the kitchen. I think that's a little extreme. <laughs> um, but there, you know, I can see how that would fit into you context. Know you try it. Yeah, I don't know. Like I had one bride and groom once that wanted to get a shot in the kitchen because they're both in the food service industry. That's a little different. Okay. But I mean, in this crew sure. that I'm referring to, they were going back and like filming the chef's cooking and all that kind of stuff. And I, I could just imagine myself getting thrown out of one of the bank, the catering facilities <laughs> here because they don't want cameras back there. Um, yeah, yeah, but you know, things like that. That's that's what I'm looking for. What else can I show besides people dancing? What can, what else can I show compositionally that's going to move the viewer's eye around this room and show something completely different? People sitting at tables. Like I'll seek out the parents and shoot them just talking to people because they may not right. be on the dance floor much, but they definitely want a you know a record of them being at the reception. So even if I sure. could just find them just in a corner or sitting at a table talking to a friend or a relative and shoot it for a couple seconds and wait for that moment. You know that old adage where if you put a camera on somebody long enough, you know, they're going to do something interesting eventually. Um, I'll do that. I'll hold that moment. And, uh, you know, within a minute or two, generally I'll get an expression that I feel like is worthy of the film. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. The last wedding I shot, I felt like every time I tried to do that, somebody like would come up to them and tell them some horrible story, at least in my imagination, you know, because the expression on their face was just <laughs> awful. I'm like, this is a wedding. Tell a joke or something, you know? <laughs> yeah. You, you see them. If you could see my face, I'd be mouthing like the, Oh my God. Like, really, Oh my God. <laughs> That's not something you want. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, I've gotten, I really, I really enjoy um, playing around with, with the composition all you know, the compositional aspect of the day. It, like, you know, it is a lot of fun. It keeps things moving and keeps things interesting. It's just those times where, you know, you don't want to mess around too much because, you know, nailing the vows and the ceremony is very important. I wanted to take a quick break here in the middle of the show to tell you about a new way that I'm saving thousands of dollars a year on music licensing. First of all, if you're new to making wedding films, you should know that you can't just pay 99 cents to iTunes and use that in your videos online. It's against the law. And you could face a heavy fine or even jail time. Yikes! So, until now, you've had to pay somewhere between $10 to $50 per song on average to get good music for your wedding films legally. And then, if you want to use that same song in a different video, you have to pony up the cash again! For some of you, this means paying well north of $5,000 a year in music licensing fees. So, what if you could get unlimited, amazing licensed music for your wedding films for only $135 a year? This is amazing! I used to spend that much just on one video. If you want to learn more, go to soundstripe.com or click the link on our website. And now, Soundstripe is offering 10% off to our listeners with the code WFA10. So again, go to soundstripe.com and use WFA10 to get 10% off of your full year of fantastic licensed music for your videos today. Not only that, but when you use code WFA10 at checkout, your purchase helps support the Wedding Film Academy to keep bringing you amazing free content to help you make better wedding films and run a more successful business. You mentioned this earlier, and I want to go back to it is what role movement plays in your composition you know you you have this balance you've you've talked about a number of the a number of examples here whether it's you know handheld behind a behind a waiter 
um, or, you know, on the dance floor, getting down low. Um, but talk to me about what's, you know, maybe it's another example, or maybe it's just something that's in your head when you're thinking about movement versus a static shot and how you're composing those two different images. It all goes back to the edit for me. Um, whenever I make, I'm, I'm on the shoot thinking about camera movement, it's how are these shots going to relate to my static shots? How will these shots fit into the context of the film and not seem like everything's a motion shot? So it comes down to mixing things up. You know, obviously you want to have a nice mix, a nice balance of static versus motion shots. My motion shots tend to be for transitions. My static shots tend to be for storytelling. So when I'm in a scene and a bride, or I always use the prep example. Let's go back to a photo session. A photo session is about moments for me. It's about intimacy. It's about a bride and groom being close together and just having a private moment. And, you know, and it's always kind of weird to shoot photo session because, you know, you put it into an edit and it's like, you know, who is this couple that's just sitting here, you know, staring at each other, doing, you know, these cutesy little moments and, you know, playing with playing with each other's hair or doing whatever, whatever it is they're doing. How does that fit into the context of, you know, the bigger picture? It's kind of almost, it almost doesn't fit. So I've always, I've just kind of taken that down, boiled that down to its, its most pure form, which is just a simple, intimate moment. And I'll shoot that static. And then... When I'm moving to another scene, I will use big motion shots, aerial drones. I'll use sweeping gimbals. I'll, you know, in and out of pillars, that sort of thing. That's going to give me the motion to get to the next scene. And it builds, it keeps, it changes the momentum, I should say. So you go from these static intimates to these wide epics that move you to the next scene. And then you can get down into the next scene, um, you know, with your statics once again. That's how I view it in my mind when I'm shooting. So if I'm <clears throat> if I arrive to a church and I know I've got aerial shots of the church already, um, <clears throat> you know, because my drone guy's there. When I walk into the inside of the building, I, I, I assess myself: Do I need motion shots in here, or can I just do some statics because I'm short on time? And will the story be complete? And most of the time, the answer is yes. Statics will work just as well. The motion just adds right. a new element of production value. So. If I've got time, I will sweep the inside of the church wide, especially, you know, if you look at my films, these grand epic churches, you know, I want motion shots just to give you the sense of space, the sense of scope, um, you know. But, you know, a tilt down with an extremely wide lens will give you a very similar effect. Um, but again, transitional. These are transitional scenes. I'm not trying to use a lot of motion when I'm in a dialogue scene or when I'm in a intimate like photo session scene, you might see slight parallaxes and things like that because that's just the way we ended up shooting the shot. Um, but in my mind, I'm thinking more like static and then movement for transitions. Yeah. No, that's great. I think that's really helpful because so much of the time on wedding day, it's really just about like capturing what's happening there. And if you're focused on, getting that fluid movement that you're looking for, you might miss the shot. Right. Um, but, but not, not only that is it helps because that added movement, unless it's just kind of a mostly stable handheld shot can 
can take you out of the moment and what's happening and back into the gear and, and trying to get that shot perfect. But if you're just on monopod locked down, you can really be kind of engulfed into that moment and making sure that you're really aware of everything that's happening in the room so that you actually get the shots that you need. Right. Right. That's a good way of putting it. And I like the idea that I like the idea too, that movement is for you about transition moments, because I think that just the, the idea that we're moving um, visually helps us in our mind to transition to the next thing that's going to happen. Yes. That makes, that makes a ton of sense. And there's also directional movement too. I've always felt in my mind when I've watched films and I've studied films, and I I don't know if this is actually something that's taught in film school, um, but the direction of the motion plays a lot into how people perceive where they're going. Um, I've always felt that motion from left to right denotes forward motion and motion from right to left on the screen denotes backwards motion. Um, and mm. I've played around with that in the past just to see if it holds water or just to see if it, if it, if it actually it does something in the edit. And I feel like it does. I feel like there's some times where if I'm panning down from something from the sky, it's almost like I'm descending into this scene. Um, or if I'm tilting up on something, I'm being brought into the scene from far away, you know, or from like down and up and in. I don't know. I've sure. played around with that and, and, and I feel like in when I'm editing and I'm cutting shots together, that helps to create this, you know, in and out motion, this sort of this very fluid, like, where am I taking the viewer? Um, so it's, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you have to play around with it to see if it works and then, you know, decide for yourself if that's something you want to try to do on the day of the wedding. Yeah, for sure. I think it's true for that that X and Y axis thing that you talked about there, but also for that Z axis of am I moving towards the subject or away from them? You know, am I coming into this this space of, you know, I'm thinking of the portrait session. Am I coming into this intimate space or are we moving out of it to transition to their entrance into the grand hall or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we may be looking really, we might be, you know, (laughs) really going deep um, in in thinking this and whether or not a bride will pick up on that or or not. Um, You know, you could, you could argue either way. I just think like in terms of creating motion and breaking out of the traditional static, breaking out of the traditional, you know, you know, lockdown shots, that's a great way to kind of play with motion and to play with composition in that context and then, and to put it together and to see what it does and, and if it works. And if you're, if you like what you see when you play it back on the timeline, then, then that's something that maybe you could cultivate and work with more, you know, in the future. Sure. Well, I think for most of our viewers who are not our peers, it's not even whether or not they get it that, you know, we did this intentionally because it brings you into the intimacy of what's happening there, but that whether or not they could articulate that, I think that they still notice it. Like, you know, in, in their subconscious, there's that, there's still the feeling that's created through that. You know, it's, it's like, you know, when I was a very uneducated, uh, you know, had, had no, before I started in filmmaking, you know, if if a cinematographer had done a spectacular job with a movie that I watched, I still could 
have the same feelings that he wanted me to have, whether or not I could articulate why I had it because of the shots he had, I still had those feelings. So I, I think there's that level of, at some point, it, it doesn't really matter whether or not they get that we did this intentionally, but just that it helped. It was a part of, of you know many other pieces that created the environment for them to feel the way that right. they felt when they watched it. Right, right. Well said. That's a great. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah, it, it just becomes a part of the process. It becomes a part of the the creative, you know, aesthetic. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, one of the things that we've talked about with with Matt and with Alex was the idea of what role light plays in your composition. And I know a lot of people. If you're thinking about composition, you're just thinking about what's in the frame. But for myself, and for I think a lot of others light really plays a big role in that. You mentioned this earlier with the silhouette shot that you were talking about um, and during the bride prep that you did. But go a little bit deeper uh, in that of what role light is playing in your composition. I think light is the primary role. Uh, you have to have, well, first of all, you're not shooting something. You don't intentionally shoot something in bad light. You try to use the best light available. And I don't just mean best as in terms of the amount of light. Uh, I'm talking about, you know, light, light creates the, the dimension within the composition. It creates the space. Light is used to shape form and it's used to, you know, you're using the shadow every bit as much as you are the highlight, you know, and the key light and where that light is coming from the light source. So, you know, you have the frame, which is a fixed aspect ratio. It's giving you a box with which to work with, but the light is what is creating the internal space. It's giving the dimension to everything. So it plays a huge role because you can compose something really nicely, but again, it goes back to, you know, is it, is it, does it have the dynamic light element? Does it have the, the, the look of, does, first of all, does it have a cinematic look to it? You know, is there light, you know, fall off in shadow? Um, or is it something that you're intentionally flat lighting for that purpose, whatever that purpose may be? Uh, sometimes flat light works really good, um, because you're trying to highlight whatever it is, is in the frame and only that in the frame and not trying to draw the eye to shadow and light and, you know, create that space. Um, so it just all depends on what you're shooting, but it plays a huge role and, uh, we'll use light. I mean, 90% of the time when I'm filming something, I'm shooting against my light source. Um, I'm, I'm usually trying to put the light source behind them or extreme left, right to create that dimension. I three quarter light is great and I'll use it in natural light settings. But when I'm lighting something like receptions, I usually shoot into my light. Uh, it just, I, first of all, I love flare. I love shooting wide open. I love flare coming into my lens. I love to have that, that, that play with light when, when objects move in front of a light source and the flare goes away and then it comes back. Like, I love that. That's like signature style stuff to me. Um, that really is where a lot of emotion plays. Uh, you can create motion with light by, you know, moving the light source through an object to create hmm. dynamic composition. Uh, we shot a ring shot recently where, um, we put the rings in front of a bottle of fireball because the, the fireball was used in shots for the toasts. Bride was, a, you know, mm -hmm. you know, loved fireball, whatever. Um, so we just <laughs> took, we took an iPhone and we shined it through the back of the fireball bottle with the rings in front of it and let the flare just come through the liquor and then shine, you know, into the lens. And the composition was, a, a, you know, a static flat frame with three rings and a fireball bottle, but the light was creating the motion purely. 
Uh, and to me, that's the composition because your eye was being drawn from left to right and then back from right to left, you know, following the light that was going, you know, back and forth beyond the bottle. So that's a perfect example of how the light will create the composition for you, um, you know, and draws the eye. Uh, and that's, that's primarily how we use light in that context. Awesome. Yeah, for sure. No, I think that's really helpful. And, and like you said, it really is the primary um, source of our composition. I think one of the things I hear way too often, and, and I think, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm taking, for some of these people, I'm taking it out of context, but I hear so many people, particularly with the A7S, because it's such a low light monster. I mean, you know, what this thing can do at high ISOs is just mind blowing that they say, oh, I really don't have to think about light. I'm like, that's the most ridiculous thing ever. It's like, the yes, anti- that is the antithesis light. to filmmaking right there. That That's ridiculous. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think for some people, they're, they're just saying, you know, oh, I don't have to bring in lights. But, but even that, uh, there are moments where you do have to bring in light if you want your subject to be well, well lit. You know, I mean, for the most part, in a, uh, in a reception hall during toasts, especially, I think, uh, they're just not going to be well lit. They're going to be lit by overhead can lights or chandeliers on top of their head. They're just going to create those raccoon eyes and that kind of thing. And it doesn't matter how good your camera is at low light. It's not going to take away the unattractive light that's on your subject. Uh, exactly. So I right. Think regardless of what camera system you're using, we really have to think about what light is our subject in and is that light telling the story that we want to tell? You know, whether it's through the drama of, you know, a silhouette or, um, you know, a spotlight where everything else falls into dark or whether it's through the, you know, the beauty of a large window light source. We really have to think about how is the light falling on our subject and how are the shadows um, you know, falling away from our subject in a way that draws our eyes into them. And and that really plays a huge role in how we compose our image, but also maybe even how we compose, like where part of composition is where we put our subject when we get the opportunity to move them. I know most of the day is capturing it as it happens, but there are a number of moments where we get to dictate some of those things. And so especially when we get the flexibility to change the position that our subject is in, we really need to be thinking about how is the light falling, um, where are the shadows falling, and letting that dictate what our composition is like. Yeah, I would agree. And I think, you know, just relying on, I mean, if you, I understand the convenience factor of not having to bring lights into a reception because your ISO will take care of the problem. Uh, in a sense, to me, that's lazy filmmaking. Um, you know, I like playing with light. If, you know, you're walking in, you're just trying to cover something for documentary and you don't have time to set up lights or you don't want to hassle with it. That's fine. You know, you know, shoot high ISO. I just, you know, for me, artistically speaking, cranking up ISO and just, you know, hoping for the best of whatever the available light gives you is, I mean, I can see how it can work creatively. It's just not my style. For sure. And it's great for, for people who are shooting with that camera. It's great to have the flexibility to do that when you just don't have the option to, you know, maybe you're shooting reactions 
to the toast and you don't want to light up, you know, all these different random tables. And so it's a great tool to have in your belt for those situations. So it's not like I'm knocking everyone who has this, this camera, but, but I do hear a lot of people with that mindset. And so as much as I can, I just want to like fight against that mentality of, Oh, well, because I can shoot at a high ISO, I don't have to light my scene. Right. Yeah. That's, that's sort of, yeah. To me, that's not something I would do. For sure. Uh, so, uh, you may not know this because you're just kind of transitioning into, um, the GH five, but I know you've also shot some 4k weddings because that's something you offer as an upgrade to your service. Um, are you ever shooting in 4k delivering in 1080 and like using the latitude from 4k to recompose your image? Or are you just trying to get it in camera exactly the way that you want it for the weddings i've done 4k i i'll use it for recomposition purposes only to correct composition i generally won't use it in to change you know can it will, will i zoom into a 4k image i don't think that's the same thing <laughs> i think zooming into a 4k image it can be effective i guess i just i don't see it that way i i just look like it looks to me like the image is cropped in um i've used it in this context of drones where i've wanted to crop out maybe a parking lot um, yeah. and I've used it in the context of, of correcting horizon lines, but I won't shoot something at 4k knowing I'm going to use the crop in as a second angle. That's just not something that I feel is, you know, it's just not something I'm comfortable doing. Um, I would rather, sure. you know, besides when you crop in, you don't change the depth of field, you know, you're not changing the compression of the image. Right. You're just zooming in. So, I mean, to me, that's, you know, I can see where it's beneficial, but the only way I've used it. Um, intentionally is just to correct maybe slight horizon lines or just to, you know, maybe remove something from the far edge of a shot. Yeah. Now I'm the same way. And, um, excuse me, most of my listeners probably know that I'm delivering most of my films in 4k. I've, I've got a pretty good 4k sales pitch. So, you know, almost all my clients are upgrading to 4k, but I'm the same way. It still it gives you enough latitude, even if you're going to deliver it in 4K, to where your eye's not really going to notice if you use it for those minor corrections like horizon lines. That That's pretty much the only way I do it as well. Right. Um, but yeah. because I'm delivering in 4K, I don't have, you know, until we get a 6K drone, I'm not cropping out parking lots or anything, <laughs> unfortunately. Oh, um, God. But it's almost uh, daunting to think about. Am, yeah, yeah, seriously. Yep. I just got my Mavic, by the way. Uh, here's my little squirrel tangent. Right on. I just got my Mavic. I had the, I still have the Phantom 4 Pro, but I'm going to Mexico in a couple of days. Uh, actually, by the time this airs, I'll be back from Mexico. But uh, I needed to bring a drone with me, and I really didn't want to bring that big Phantom 4 Pro with me. So I'm pretty I, I just took the Mavic with me to San Francisco, and it was great. It was just so easy to pack and nobody questioned it. And it was just, you know, it was a pleasure to, to work with cause it was so small. Yeah. Pretty awesome. Awesome. Okay. Talk to me about where, since we're getting on the, the topic of, of gear here a little bit, talk to me about the tools that you're using in your footage. You mentioned the crane, the Zion crane or however you pronounce it. I don't know if anybody knows how to pronounce that properly. I have no I idea. I say Zion. <laughs> Zion. I pronounce yeah, things as they're you spelled. Might, you, know. you might be right, yeah. Um, so you mentioned that as a tool. 
What are other tools that you're using? Are you on monopod a lot? Are you like tripod? I mean, what are you using in terms of the tools that are helping you to get that composition? Um, yeah, so monopod, obviously, um, you know, each of us have a monopod. Uh, tripods for ceremonies where I don't, you know, have the ability to move around too much. Monopod, I'll monopod my angle of the ceremony, like for a beach wedding or an on-site ceremony, so I can move around and get reaction shots. I can get different angles. I have a little bit more flexibility, while my other two or three cameras would be locked down. Uh, the Gion Crane for the GH5 and doing my wide epic sweeps, uh, the drone, obviously. And then, um, as far as a slider goes, with the C100, I've been using the Kessler Stealth Slider with the Parallax Bar. Um, but I'm downsizing that because it's a monster, it's heavy, and it's cumbersome, uh, and it needs to be mounted to a heavy-duty tripod. So I'm moving, you know, once I go all GH5, my plan is to move either to a Rhino system, which is small carbon fiber, lightweight, motorized, or to some sort of an Edelkron device, whether it's the wing, um, which I rented and used in San Francisco, and I really enjoyed it, um, or maybe something like... Uh, you know, like the Elkron one, something along those lines. I'm just looking to downsize the size of the slider because I'm so tired of lugging around big, heavy crap. Um, and I yeah. used to bring, I used to bring an entire Cobra crane with me, uh, for jib shots, but we don't do that anymore because the gimbal kind of takes care of the jib necessity. Um, except for the jobs where I convinced my clients to do a full out production crane, like we did on a recent film that we just released, um, which is a whole different beast in itself. Um, yeah, but yeah, Tell me I about mean, that, cause I saw that on your recent, the recent film that you posted that you had that, um, that production crane out there. So tell me about what you, what you did on that. Yeah. Uh, a lot of my clients for Manhattan, they like, uh, to have like a very large, uh, overhead angle for whatever part of the day where, whether it's ceremony or reception. And I work with a guy out of New York. He does, uh, you know, feature films like real, like gets hired to do real jib stuff. Um, and he's got a 25 foot, um, Jimmy jib and he comes out and he <laughs> does full out operation with, you know, focus control, zoom control, the whole nine yards. And I just basically hook him up with a camera and a nice lens, usually the Canon 11 to 24, um, which is what we've been using. And then I just let him go to town and he gets me room shots. He gets me, you know, overheads of all the introductions and dancing and the toasts. And it's, it's fantastic. Like I just let him go to town and he's there for four hours and just does his stuff. Um, you know, he charges me a flat fee, so I roll that into the price and mark it up. And uh, it's great because it adds a very large element of production value, and it gives me a lot of great stuff to work with, especially for doc edits. And uh, I love, and if I could have it on every job, I would. It's just you need a very large venue in order for that to, to be accommodating. So, sure. you know, it's not there every time, but I'd like it to be. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. I can't... Uh... I mean, just, just the idea of having someone there whose sole purpose for those four hours is just operating the crane is, is kind of mind blowing to, uh, to myself <laughs> and probably a lot of our listeners. That's pretty awesome. Well, we are coming in here towards the end of the show. And as is pretty much always the case, I forget to remind my guests that there's a pick of the week at the end of the show. Oh God, I totally forgot about the pick of the week. Yeah, well, it's it's mostly my fault for not reminding you here. So I'm going to go first. Um, and if you can think of anything, that's cool. If you just can't think of anything at the moment, then that's fine too. But uh, I my pick of the week is, is something kind of different. It's funny. I actually, um, so for my volume brand, we recently um, just bought a ton of equipment. I think I just dropped like 20 grand 
uh, trying to get all of our stuff uh, the same and upgrade a bunch of our stuff and everything. Um, so we brought in, you know, boxes and boxes of gear to our studio here. And uh, my studio manager, the thing that she was excited about more than anything were these new quick release plates that we got. I'm like, you know, here I spent 20 grand and you're most excited about the $30 quick release plates that I got for everything. Uh, but they are phenomenal. Uh, it's, it's Oben. I think it is O B E N. Um, they're the Q R a dash R two, quick release, uh, plates, but they're awesome because they're these tiny little square plates. They're not those big Manfrotto plates that you have to slide in. Um, but they're phenomenal, I think, for any mirrorless or DSLR setup um, because partly because they're so small, but also because they snap into place rather than slide into place. And so the cool thing about these is you can actually screw the quick release, uh, I don't know if you call it the mount or the assembly, um, but the you know the bottom part of the quick release place, you can screw it on to another plate. So rather than having to like go buy all new heads or something like that, you use your existing head and you can screw this on top of it. And then you screw the plate direct into the, the camera. Um, or we also put it on, like we put it on the bottom of our crane since it has the, the threading on the bottom there. So we can quickly snap the crane onto a tripod. Um, but it makes everything completely interchangeable very quickly, um, which is the whole idea behind a quick release plate. But this does it so much faster than anything else that we've done before because rather than sliding into place, it snaps into place. Um, so you can literally, you know, undo the little uh, latch and uh, you you just stick it on top of the new one and it snaps into place the the... Um, lever just snaps right back in and you're ready to go. It's already tight and everything. So it just makes moving around super fast and easy. And rather than having those massive plates on a tiny little camera, uh, you know, you have a, a quick release plate that fits it and doesn't feel weird. So I can also, it's nice that I can be on monopod or tripod or gimbal and quickly take it off and even go handheld without it feeling really awkward. Um, it just, you know, you hardly even notice that it's there even, um, whenever you go handheld with it. So yeah, I'm a huge fan of the open QRA R2 quick release plates. So, uh, you can get those on B and H for, uh, just under 30 bucks. So highly recommend that we even actually, uh, we're considering getting some to put on our light stand. So even those could, could snap on and off really easy we haven't done that yet but um but yeah they can go on anything so pretty awesome tool and it's only 30 bucks so that's probably my one of my cheapest pick of the weeks so i didn't break the bank too much on you there cool okay. what about you do you have anything for us i guess i mean i i, I just rolled out a new um uh lighting system that i've been using oh, nice. and I'm, I'm using the uh the Felix 360 lights. Oh yeah, um, my buddies for those. smaller venues. Yeah, I actually like them a lot. They're not good for large venues because they don't have a whole lot of throw. Even with the um, even with the the uh, Fresnel attachments that they have, it still doesn't throw great. But they're you know color dialable. They're dimmable. Uh, they're they're 
battery powered with a pack. You can buy an additional pack for them mm-hmm. um, to make them battery powered. Um, but they're small, lightweight, compact, and for destination weddings, they're perfect. Or just when you're working in a smaller venue and they generate no heat whatsoever. So nice. I've been leaving the Aries at home and I've been using the Felix lights and I love them. So the Felix 360 lights, and I can't remember how much they are. <laughs> I think they're somewhere in the um, four to $500 range for the base package. And then if you want a battery add on and the Fresnel um, attachment, it's going to cost you a few hundred dollars more, but that would be my pick. I just like, you know, like I'm all about downsizing right now. So being able to travel light and, you know, check them and they even come in like a padded case, like in the box. So I just take the padded case out. I drop that into a a case and then you have further protection and they're just, they're great lights. I mean, the color, the color's true. They're flicker free. Um, and for small reception lighting, they're perfect. And I connect them to remote switches, and I can just turn them on on and off remotely. And I like them a lot. Nice. So the Felix 360s. Yeah. Yeah, I just pulled it up. Uh, so if you want to get a full three light kit set that comes with the the case you talked about, I think it does it come with. Yeah, it comes with the seven uh, seven foot stands and everything. Um, just under two thousand dollars for the full set of three. So really not bad. Yeah, for it's all not a bad price. Yeah. Yeah, it's not bad. And I have I have friends who use the Practolites and they swear by them how great they are. And they are great, but they're expensive. The two thousand dollars a light, you know. So right. if you you know you don't have that budget, you know, and you know I don't need Wi Fi connectivity and all that crap. It's just another thing I have to deal with on the day of a wedding. You know, give me something I can plug in or put a battery on, and I'm good. Right. Yep. For sure. I've I've recently switched to a new light as well. The the Photodiox uh, Pop Spot. And it's a similar similar type of concept. Uh, my guess is it probably has a little bit better throw than what you're talking about, um, but it's it's also a little bit bigger when you put the battery pack on, at least from from what I'm seeing online. Now I haven't seen the other one in, in you know uh, in person, but uh, this thing is still relatively small and. It's it's also LED, so I've been used to using the Dito lights, which I know a ton of people are using, um, probably because of Ray's uh, race class that he did. Um, but those those Dito lights are are also awesome, but they will burn your hand off when you try to put them uh, put them away for the night. So yeah, I've, I've yeah, been loving I'm, this one. Yeah, for, I, I like the Ditos. Yeah, the Ditos are brilliant. Yeah, I, I I like them, but you know, again, the heat, and then you've you know. I don't know. Do they come with a dichrotic uh, daylight plate or are they, I don't know. I don't even know. I haven't researched them in a while. Yeah, I don't, do they have a daylight option? They don't. Uh, no, they're all. Yeah. They're all see, that would, that would, that's a game changer for me. I need something that's dialable. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. These come, uh, the, the pop spot comes as daylight, um, but you, know, you can just pop in a little 3200 K filter. Yep. CTO. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, Anyways, right on. Way off topic. That wasn't my pick of the week. Maybe I'll make it a pick of the week later. <laughs> um, but very cool. Well, thanks for coming on again, Rob. This is really awesome. I really appreciate you squeezing me in. I know you're trying to do a little family trip to the beach here. So, hope you have a great trip. Yeah. Well, it's it, it's it's raining today, so I don't think it's going to happen. But we're still going to have a nice day. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> very cool. All right. Well, thanks again, Rob. I really appreciate it. The Wedding Film Academy podcast is produced by Taylor Juarez. If you found this episode helpful, be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show and help us out by leaving a five-star review on iTunes. And when you're done, head on over to WeddingFilmAcademy.org to chat with our other wedding filmmakers like yourself in the comments section. Until next time, keep making movie magic.